0: All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to return back into our study of Micah. We're going to be in chapter 6 today, and then going to be into 7, and we may even finish up Micah, and then move on to Nahum and tackle that one next. So we'll see how far we get, but before that we'll do an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven. All right, so just a little bit of refresher since we've all had turkey and everything since we last got together. So in the book of Micah, we've had all the coming destruction, the woes that Micah gave through chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, he denounces all the rulers that, you know, hey, you should have known better. You are the ones that should know what justice is, but you hate the good and do the evil. Then in chapter 4, we get the mountain of the Lord and a little bit of that promise of, in verse 2, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways we may walk in his paths. Then into chapter 5, the more explicit promise of the birth of the Messiah. That's where we got Bethlehem named specifically. So that's where... In Matthew chapter 2, they point back to this prophecy of where the Messiah is to be born. And then, in the end of chapter 5, we have the remnant being delivered. At the All through there, in verses 10 through 15, the cutting off of the cities of your land, throwing down all your strongholds, cutting off the sorceries and the like there, and just... Put utter destruction of the cities. And then we got into the beginning of chapter 6, but again, since it's been a little bit, going to do a little bit of a refresher there. 6 1 starts out with hear what the Lord says. So we'll get this language of hear repeated all throughout here. No pun intended there. But he's going to be re- recalling them to listen to what the Lord has said and to not only hear, but remember, to understand, and to therefore carry out what the Lord has them to do. So it says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So this is the Lord effectively having, starting out a court case with them. And the witnesses for that case is going to be creation itself. It's going to be the mountains, the hills that are being witnesses in this case. And so the Lord begins his case in, chapter, or in verse 3. O oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Of course, they're not going to have an answer for him. But then in verse 4, we get Exhibit A in the court case. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Yeah, don't you remember that great salvific act that I did for you? It's Exhibit A. Again, how have I wearied you? What have I done to you to be deserving of your unfaithfulness to me? And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam these great servants of the Lord for them. Again, how have I wearied you? What have I done to you? O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And for more on that, you can look at your study notes and then that refers you to Numbers 22 to 24. If you want a little bit of a refresher on that, the study note says, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, but the Lord forced him to bless Israel instead. So again, he's bringing that back to remember what the Lord had done for them in those places. And then in verse 6, we get a little bit, again, of a shift here. Still, Some may say it's still within this court case, or it may be its own kind of distinct section. Again, in our ESV Bibles, we have all the split up headers but back then they wouldn't have had that. So it's either easier for us to understand where these breaks are, or it leads us even into more confusion because they put breaks where there shouldn't necessarily be breaks. But again, the Lord had previously said, what have I done to you? And now this speaker in verse 6, Luther takes it as Micah is the one speaking as being as an intercessor for the people. But others just kind of take it as an unnamed speaker, someone within the people of Israel, likely. That seems to be what the case is. I don't favor quite as much the view of Micah here as the intercessor, and we'll see why here in a moment. But the man, whoever he is, is saying, "...with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high?" So again, the Lord had said previously, what have I done to you? And now the man is saying, with what shall I come before the Lord? And the bowing myself before before God on high, the Concordia commentator has something to say for that bowing. And he notes that it's not the typical word that you would see for bowing and that it's actually a different word that is more associated with being oppressed. And so this man is saying, you know, how should I bow myself before God on high? And him kind of saying, well, God has been oppressing me. And not a bowing in worship, but more of a complete at loss of what to do here. And so he's just bowing, having been oppressed by God. He didn't flesh out the argument too much there. And don't know if that holds too much weight. But nonetheless, so he's, this man is saying, with what shall I come before the Lord? And he gives the first one, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? All right, that's a good thing to do. The Lord does rejoice and is glad with these burnt offerings. With calves a year old, what does the Lord set pleasing to him? We've seen that throughout the minor prophets of the Lord saying, you know, I delight not in these sacrifices that you're doing, because at the same time that they'd be giving these burnt offerings or these calves a year old, maybe going down the street to the pagan temple and offering sacrifices there. So the very act of these sacrifices to God while still offering sacrifices to pagans, well, the Lord just simply isn't going to be pleased with your own sacrifices that you give to him. And then the man, he steps it up. A little bit. He escalates things and he says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? So, again, asking this question, not just with a few calves that are a year old, but thousands of rams, maybe ten thousands of rivers of oil. Will the Lord be pleased if I give even more sacrifices, more oil to him? The answer is still no. He escalates it even more. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So He escalates it even more to the point of sacrificing his own firstborn for his sins. Will Will that finally appease the Lord here? Again, child sacrifices, the Lord doesn't look favorably upon those. But again, the man is saying, with what can I, can I appease the Lord? And he's saying, can I even give my firstborn? And of course, is no. But as we'll see as we carry on, we see the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah here, who ultimately was the firstborn of the Father. Shall I give my firstborn, not for my transgression, but for the transgression of my people, that Christ did come the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And the commentator has a note here of, that the Heavenly Father is the one who experiences the grief that he spared of Abraham. If you recall, the Lord said to sacrifice Isaac, but the Lord spared Abraham that grief and that sorrow of having to carry that out. And so he offered a ram in his place. And so here ultimately is the Father himself who experiences that grief of giving his firstborn for the sake of his own very people. The, one, the same ones who here have wearied him or been unfaithful to him is to, for them that he gives his firstborn. So a little bit of allusion there to the Messiah who is to come. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. So again, the man had been questioning, with what shall I come before the Lord? And the Lord is saying, he has told you, or, he is saying, he has told you O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So the Lord here is directing their focus to the love for neighbor, of doing good But doing justice and loving kindness. We'll see here in a minute of still their wickedness and their dishonest scales, and so their lack of justice and their lack of their love and kindness for their neighbors. And so that's what the Lord is saying He desires is not all these sacrifices of these calves, these ten thousand or these thousands of rams and these ten thousand rivers of oil, but rather to show kindness, to do justice, and to walk humbly with your God. That is ultimately what he desires for you. And that's exactly what they haven't been doing all along. They've been unfaithful, not only to God, but to the neighbor around them. And so God is calling them to task here on that. All right, any questions on this first section? Nothing? Alrighty. Verse 9 continues. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And then Micah here interjects mid-thought, and he says, And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. So he's saying the voice of the Lord is crying out, and yeah, you should fear his name. It's a healthy dose of fear to fear the one who has told you to do justice, and well, you haven't been doing justice, so fear him. And then this is what the Lord has crying out is crying out to the cities. Again, hear, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. So again, the rod being used to beat those who are wayward. You know, your shepherd has a staff and a rod, staff to kinda of help guide the sheep, a rod for whenever the sheep kind of goes off and does its own thing. So the rod of punishment and him who appointed it. So again, hear of him, that is, to not only hear but listen, to understand and to carry out the words of those of the one whom appointed the rod. Can I forget any longer again, this is the Lord speaking the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measures measure that is accursed. So the scant measure, the dishonest scale. So uneven weights and measures that, is using, that they've been using. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence and your, your inhabitants speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, with that rod of his, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will, go, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. All right, so here is the curses on these people, against all of creation itself as well, of you shall eat and not be satisfied, and there will be hunger within you, and and we see that still today for us, of you can eat, you may be satisfied, but only for maybe a couple hours, and then it gets close to dinner time, and then you're not satisfied anymore, even on Thanksgiving, by the time nine o'clock hits, you're going back in the fridge and rummaging around, and in some leftovers because you're not satisfied with that. And even that which you preserve the Lord will give to the sword. So even that which you store up for yourself will be dashed to pieces or maybe even that which you preserve in your savings account will be the sword of inflation will be taken to it and it won't be nearly worth as much as whenever you first put it in. So that which you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. So this working that they are doing in the field, they won't be paid for it, or even if they are paid, not their fair share of what they have earned for their labor. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. That same theme carried out. Verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab. So you study note makes a note that these were the father and son, uh, kings of Israel, whose wickedness became proverbial. So that's why he's able to just call it to their memory. They would have remembered exactly what he's talking about here. We have to do a little more digging for ourselves, that we don't remember these things quite as much. And you have walked in their counsels, as a counsel of their wickedness, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. So again, these people, the Lord, they will be made a desolation. It would just be this hissing. The study note makes note of the inhabitants of the city would be objects of derisive hissing. So again, we saw that, I think it was Amos, Kind of as the laughing stock, they'll be just scorned and they'll be singing, you know, songs about you and making fun of you as you walk through the streets. That same type of imagery used here. And then chapter seven we're gonna get a shift with Micah. Are there any thoughts on that? Yeah, Chris.
1: So there in, um, in chapter 6, verse 8, where he says, um, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Um, so I'm thinking, what does that mean? Well, God's law, like the Ten Commandments. Um, but then he also goes on in 6.10, he, he mentions the scant measure that is accursed. Mm-hmm. And then he also talks about a bag of deceitful weights. So I'm thinking, well, first of all, I wonder if we could just, what what would that be, a deceitful weight exactly? And then also... There seems to be something with the, the scant measure and the deceitful weights that they're, they're, justice is going to involve some sort of accurate accounting on man's part, mm-hmm. not just in relationship to God, but to his neighbor and even to God's creation. Like being able mm-hmm. to accurately measure things. So, mm-hmm. what does anybody know what that means? The deceitful weights. What would that what would that look like?
0: Yeah. So, look? I mean, don't really. I'm trying to think of a good modern context, but back then. Or even whenever you were in school, did you guys have those like analog scales that then you had all those different weights that you had to put on? So kind of the same type of thing that they would have, but you, know, you can shave a little bit off the bottom, and then it still looks like it's one gram, but you've cut a little off, and it's not a true weight there. So, so then as you're doing trade, here, I've got my weights here. I'll use that to measure out your grain, and I'll pay you the fair share. But you've had dishonest weights, and so it's not actual the honest measurement of
1: that. So the dishonesty would be in the, the labeling of the weight, falsely labeling it.
0: Yeah, manipulation like, of it in some yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you see that today. I mean, in the business world, you see that all around. Yeah, we'll give you all this, but you got to read the fine print, and oops, you didn't read the 20 pages of the terms and conditions, so that's on you. Yeah, same type of thing today. Does that answer your question? Or is there, was there a second part to that? Well, I
1: mean, that question of deceitful weights is just literally mm-hmm. like, how would you deceive, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but then the second thing of the scant measure and the deceitful weights relating to doing justice, does mm-hmm. that seem correct? That Justice then means like accurately being able to see and account for God's creation and mm-hmm. not just in trade, but just accurately measuring things. I don't know accuracy and measuring being part of that.
0: You yeah, may it would carry out through different areas of your life, not just trade, but in other avenues as well, of doing justice takes on... Uh, We've got another hand up here, Chris. Yeah, it takes on a bunch of different forms, not just exclusively these weights or anything, but rather justice.
2: Yeah, it's broad. On a semi-humorous note, I, I used to be a customer of Baskin-Robbins, and and they would weigh the uh, ice cream. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. You know, I would go in, and I'd, I always want, can you give me a large serving mm-hmm. on a cone? But anyway, they, they would weigh it. Um, seriously, uh, what jumps off the, the verses to me here is that there's an expression I think uh, we have if we don't learn from history, we are deemed to repeat it, and mm-hmm. that seems to jump off here. You know, uh, God is telling us that. Look what I did. Look what, mm-hmm. and look how you reacted to it. And it's just a cycle, and it applies to us today too. Absolutely. So reading the Old Testament here is just wonderful for us to uh, resonate with that truth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, has anything changed? You can. Maybe modernize a little bit of the people. You may not have, you know, Omri and Ahab, but you could plug and play any other modern, modern people here. And very same truths would apply today. Just, again, it's the history of fallen man, and it's been the same all throughout, it seems. So, yeah, nothing new under the sun. So even though we want to go back to the good old days, what are those good old days? And or they're not dishonest scales back then, but maybe they would have just taken on some different forms there. Any other thoughts before we move on to chapter 7? All right. So here it seems that Micah is speaking now. Again, so hard to figure out all the who's speaking when and who they're speaking to, but it seems to be the consensus is, Woe is me, for I have become... As when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So the land has been harvested, and now it is just a barren wasteland that everything has been gathered up, it has been gleaned, and so even those little bit of scraps that are going to be lying on the floor have been gleaned up. And so there's just nothing left here. And so woe is me. Verse 2, The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Again, speaking about history repeating itself, wouldn't we say that same thing today of the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind? We could join with Micah here in exclaiming that. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. So the net being used to ensnare their prey and then lying in wait. So waiting and ready to pounce on their prey or even lying these nets and waiting for the trap to spring. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. So they've been training for that Unrighteousness, that wickedness, they are experts at it. they can do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. Not that that would happen today, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. so weaving kind of like a spider web is what your study notes says. We could weave webs to, entang- to tangle the weak and the unwitting. so all these wicked people, these princes and judges, are weaving together this web to then ensnare and trap those who are faithful and, or those who even are weak, that they may prey on them. Wait, I, that mm-hmm. to the yeah. That. Again, no connection to today. We can't think of any applications to this. They'd weave together something, that there'd be some higher powers out there that would be scheming day and night to how to trap everyone and prey on them. Yeah, just no application for us. The best of them is like a briar, like a thorny weed. So the best of the wicked men is but just a thorny weed. So that's what they have to offer, the best of theirs. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge So day of your watchman Of your punishment has come Now their confusion is at hand So this day has come Whether that's more precisely the day of Either the Syrian and Babylonian captivity Or 70 AD Or looking forward to the final day Again, the answer is probably yes to all of those Their confusion is at hand. Verse 5, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. So this day has come where you can't even trust your neighbor or your friend. You have to guard the doors of your mouth lest you be canceled nowadays. So you got to watch what you say. You can't say anything to Against the grain, against the princes and the judges, especially nowadays on social media or anything of the like. And even from her who lies in your arms, so your very own spouse, this day of coming that you can't even trust your own spouse. You must guard your mouth, even though that may be wise advice sometimes to watch what you say, but... This lack of ability to trust, lest you be ensnared or caught up in all of this. So this dividing of the family we see continued on in verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And so here we see this division of due to the corruption in the world where you can't even trust your friend, your spouse, your son, your daughter, your daughter-in-law, your mother-in-law, or anything because of the widespread corruption. But then don't these words kind of remind us of what our very own Lord says, where there will be a new division, not due to corruption, rather from your faith, your hope, your trust in him. That's going to cause its own kind of division. but That is a righteous and a good division to happen for your own sake, for the sake of your soul, that you wouldn't get ensnared in the web of the prince of darkness. That there would be these divisions that would rise up when you do pick up your cross and follow Christ. So we see that new division that takes place today. Rather in a positive light, not that it is a positive thing, but for our sake, it would be better for us to forsake son, daughter, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law for the sake of our own souls than to perish with them. So an application to today there. Are there any thoughts on that before we move on kind of into another section, starting in verse 7? All right. Verse seven, it continues. So again, whether it's Micah or the remnant, the faithful remnant speaking, could be either. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so we have these three verbs used here of Looking, waiting, and now hearing. So we look and we wait, especially in this season of Advent, this looking and this waiting for the birth of the Messiah on Christmas here. Then we get this promise at the end of seven that my God will hear me. So in the midst of all this division that takes place, all of this corruption, we have that consolation that my God will hear me. He will hear my cries. He, will, he, knows that he knows of those who are looking to him, who are waiting for him and for the salvation that he brings. And he promises to hear us, even in the midst of this darkness and this division. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So he's basically saying, enemies, don't get your hopes up. Even whenever I fall, I'm going to rise again. So we have that great comfort here, that great promise. Even whenever I sit in darkness or as I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So as the Lord hears, he's also a light in the midst of that darkness. And we'll see how he contrasts that in verse 9 here. Continues on, I will bear the indignation of the Lord... So bearing that wrath of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he, that is the father of the Lord, pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So as you sit in darkness, the Lord is your light in this life. And then ultimately that fulfillment is at the end of verse 9, where he will bring me out to that light, where it won't just be this small flame, but rather this radiance of his glory. We We saw that, was it last Sunday, for the parable of the ten virgins, remember with the wedding feast, and the light has come into that wedding hall. So he will bring us out of the darkness of that midnight when our bridegroom comes, bring us into that, Wedding feast where that light shines. But backing up a little bit into verse 9, the bearing of the indignation because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. So that being the ultimate fulfillment in Christ who bears the wrath of the Lord, not because he has sinned, but because we have sinned. So he takes that upon myself. And then the Father pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. So that judgment being that we are made righteous on account of what Christ has done for us, namely bearing the wrath of the Lord for our sake and for the sins that we have committed. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, "'Where is the Lord your God?' My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So I don't really know why there's all of a sudden a shift to now the feminine here. The shame will cover her who said to me. Maybe it's the oftentimes cities are kind of personified in the feminine here, especially in the Hebrew and I think maybe sometimes in the Greek as well. That's kind of a common thing that know, Jerusalem being the, the her, the bride. We being the bride of Christ here. So that may be what it is. Where is the Lord your God? So those very same ones who'd said, where is the Lord your God? So we will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So again, remember back to like, I don't know how late or how long ago it was where the sewage would just kind of be in the streets and everything. So the mire of the streets, just the nastiness of the streets would be trampled down like the sewage in the gutters here is basically the image here he's giving. So our eyes will look upon her, the very same one who would shame us, now will be filled with shame and trampled down. A day for the building of your walls... In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. So, here we get this great and final day. We'd seen this previously, was in chapter four, with the coming up to the mountain, the many nations coming to the mountain. And saying, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So, those many nations that are being gathered together at the end here. We see even that there would be faithful, the faithful remnant within Assyria and Egypt. So, even in nations that are enemies of the Lord and those who oppressed his people. Within those cities, within those nations, there would still be those who fear the Lord and follow him and would be gathered together on the last day here, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. So this total gathering together. And that's in contrast to verse 13, but the earth will be desolate because of its its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So that is complete opposite of the day of the building up of the walls, that the city has been so, become so large in population that the boundaries shall be far extended to make room for all of these people from all the nations coming together. And so this great ingathering is now in contrast to verse 13 of the earth being desolate. No one is because of all of its inhabitants the fruit of their deeds, so just be laid to waste because of their lack of faith in the Lord here. Again, we get a little bit of a shift in verse 14, moving on, but are there any questions on that other section that we just covered? Any thoughts or reflections as well? There's a marvelous imagery in verse 11 here of the day of building up of the walls. So, these large walls being built around the city. What's the point of having walls around a city? It's to protect you from those on the outside. And so, this complete protection of his people. He's gathering them together inside all these walls that can't be penetrated by the enemy here. he continues on in verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. So previously we had the rod and the one who appointed the rod used to beat people into shape. Now shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. So these are the sheep of the Lord, namely us and all believers who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. So Bashan and Gilead, these great and fertile places. So this great grazing area for his sheep. For us who dwelled alone in the forest, whether it be alone as a collective or alone alone. Whether we're just a small little group of people in the midst of a big and mighty group of wicked princes and judges in a wicked world. Those who dwell alone in the forest, they will be grazing in these great and plentiful lands. As in the days when you came out to the land of Egypt, so again recalling that great salvific act of the Lord, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. So the very same nations. We saw this, especially in Amos, of, well, you think you have all this great military might, just you wait, and he can utterly destroy it just with the snap of a finger, essentially. If you think, you know, all these nukes or maybe all these fancy chariots or something back then are going to save you. And so finally here, they will recognize the futility of all the might that they've built up. They'll actually be ashamed of it, of just seeing how useless it is in the face of the Lord. It's a transition here. Micah was praying, and Mm -hmm. now the Lord responds in 15, right? Let's see. So Micah is speaking in chapter 7, verses 1 through... Let's see... Again, that's the hard part about all this is he still continue on in verse 8, um, verse 9 as well. The eye will bear. Then my enemy still on 10. They will, they will come to you. Kind of hard to tell in 11 if there's kind of a shift.
2: It's 14 is still Micah, I think. Let's
0: see, does a study note get. They probably don't give any helpful information on this. That's how special he portion. Yeah, they don't seem to give anything there. Again, it would kind of be a both and, whether or not it's Micah speaking to the people, or if it's the Lord speaking to them. It'd still be the same message of shepherd your people.
2: In 15, it goes on to, I will show them marvelous things. That's the Lord speaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um. But then in 17 you have, they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. And so whether or not there's a, another shift there. The fear of you would be the fear of the people. I would, It would seem to be that the nations shall be they shall see you. They'll see how great and mighty you are on that day. And they will even fear you. I don't know. What are some other... What are you guys seeing? No? And that's the hard part about these minor prophets, is trying to follow who's speaking when. Yeah, Liz?
2: I don't know if it helps, but the outline on mm-hmm. page um, 1486... Mm-hmm. Like on C
0: is Micah's Lament. Micah's Lament, 7, 1 to 6. Yeah, but then whether or not the 7 is confident. So it seems like they're taking it still as kind of Micah here is speaking, but not as, as a lament, but rather in the confidence of the Lord's deliverance. When you yeah, again, I don't have a clear answer on this. It's.
2: 715 says the Lord responded to his people's prayer by
0: promising new exodus. Mm hmm. Study Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I oh, don't know. Wish I had a clearer answer for you. <laughs> I think it gets even worse in Nahum and some of the other minor prophets. So we have that to look forward to as we continue on with some more lack of ability to have clearly identify who's speaking. But nevertheless, the same truths apply here of this great and marvelous day when they will be ashamed of all their might and they're even covering their mouths and you know their ears are deafened They lick the dust like a serpent. So we're calling the curse of the serpent in Genesis, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. So again, that which you think would be the great might of a people, their strongholds, they're going to come cowering out of those, trembling in fear. They're not kind of hiding under a rock or hiding in a little hole in the ground. They've got these great and mighty strongholds but in the face of the Lord, they are but a tiny little hole in the ground that you're cowering in because they're just utterly useless in that day. So come out trembling. They shall turn and dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. All right, any last thoughts or questions on that before we get into the last section of Micah here, these last three verses? Again, just a great hope and great promise for us in the midst of this world that we live in. The great promise that we have for that final time where all the enemies of the earth, you know, they may be ruling in some respect here on this earth and they may seem like they have the upper hand, but ultimately on that day the Lord will come and they'll be cowering in fear and they'll see his great might and we will be vindicated in our faith and our trust in him for all the shame that they've given to us for our faith and our hope and our trust in God. Our Lord will come and they will see it for how it really is. So they will be trembling in fear. And so, some marvelous almost end of Micah. That same great promise continues on in verse 18 through 20. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? so who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? We get this in one of our offices I can't remember which one it is. Is that Josh, do you know compline okay, yeah so we get we get that same same language here, and the passing over transgression that obviously would have. Brought up images for them of the Passover, and the Lord did pass over them for the remnant of his inheritance. So, the great promise for this remnant. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So again, treading them underfoot. As you tread it underfoot, it's left behind you. It's just gone. It's flattened, destroyed, and it's in the rearview mirror, never to be looked at again. And casting of the sins into the depths of the sea. Just before class, Chris and I were talking about the deepest part of the ocean and everything, and just, just completely awestricken at that, that and then how little people have actually drilled into the depths of the earth. But still, this, anyways, there's still the image of this depths of the sea. Nowadays, yeah, we have some better submarines and stuff, but even then you can't get to the full depths of the sea. And so, more so back then. I mean, they didn't have the ability to go deep into the sea. And so this imagery of being cast into the depths, never to be found again. Just great and marvelous image. Again, we kind of see that with some old baptismal uh, fonts. They weren't fonts. They were like holes in the ground that then you would step into. So you'd see the images on the bottom of, like in Mosaic, you'd have dragons and all these oceanic beasts down there. And so they're drowned in there, and they're drowned and dead and at the bottom of the sea. So you're drowning them in that sea, never to be brought up again drown into those depths. You will, show steadf- you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So again, for those of you who are in the 8 o'clock class, Pastor was talking about those who had this promise but died before they received the fulfillment of that promise. But we can still hold the Lord to that promise, that he has shown faithfulness, and we have that great joy of that hope for the last day when we will be vindicated, we will be brought into that light, and the enemies of on this earth will see God and see us for who we really are as redeemed children of God for that. So again, just a marvelous, marvelous uh, book here. Hopefully it was kind of enjoyable again. Micah 1 was a real bear to kind of get through and make sense of, if you can recall that far back. But still, a fun book, fun to go through some of the minor prophets. Are there any thoughts or final contemplations on Micah before we move on to? I have a question. Yeah. Going back to
1: 14, mean mm-hmm.
3: I, I, I see it that Micah was talking, telling God, you shepherd your people with your staff to flock of inheritance? Because in 20, he said, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, meaning to mm. God. So I see that in 14, God is saying, you, God, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. So is it mm. like Mike talking to God about his inheritance? Because yeah. in 20, he says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob. So I see the same correlation mm. there between 20 and 14 that Mike was referring to God, mm-hmm. you, you God-shepherd, you flock, which is you stop? Yeah. The, the you yeah. Because God's inheritance is the
1: remnant of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So I see Mike talking to God in that,
3: um, Micah talk, talking to God at 14, like mm-hmm. he's is on 20.
0: hmm well, Maybe I'm mistaken, but that's how it is. Yeah, I kind of like that within 14 of that your inheritance yeah. if it's I mean, could even either be kind of a subjective or objective yeah, whether it's your being your God yeah. if it's God's inheritance that then he gives us so or if it's your as an in our inheritance Yeah, I see like it's referring mm-hmm. to God like, like he did on 20 you who mm-hmm. show faithfulness to Jesus yeah. so you God shepherd So if he's calling to the Lord of shepherd your people, if it's kind of a plea to the Lord, we're calling for him to be, to do what he has promised to do. And then that ultimate fulfillment in 20 of, as he said, you know, shepherd your people, you will show that I know that you are faithful and you will be. Yeah, I kind of like that. It's an interesting connection.
2: Just a comment on referencing the 8 o'clock class. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we did learn that uh, God delights when we hold him to his promises. Mm-hmm. And we do that in our prayers. And it sounds like this is the way Micah is ending,
1: mm-hmm.
2: where Micah is holding. He's, he's describing the uh, the end and what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. that's where our hope is rooted in the promises of God. Yeah. So it seems that we should know God's promises very uh, clearly and distinctly and pray mm-hmm. those back. The psalmists do that, I think, a lot. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, just, it just seems like it mm-hmm. just reminds me of that here.
0: And just a great model here of, you know, as you call out to God, you know that he is faithful, that he will show that steadfast love there. So you know his character and who he is
3: there. So just thought I'd give a few more thoughts to ponder in 14 Mm -hmm. and 15 and following specifically with an eye to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so shepherd your people with your staff. We know that Christ is the good shepherd. Mm -hmm. We know that Moses was a shepherd and shepherd his people out of Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. Then in 15, as in the days when you came, so this is, If you have it Christ speaking, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So a new exodus coming, right? Mm -hmm. And Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us that he's speaking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus. So this greater exodus to come. So in other words, I'm trying to build a case for why I think this is Christ here in specific, Mm -hmm. the second person of the Trinity. Uh, He's called the shepherd. He's going to shepherd them with a Mm -hmm. new exodus uh, and and showing them marvelous things. Okay, then nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you, you being the people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so um, how is it that he can refer to the people and to the Lord, our God, and yet be the one who shows marvelous things? So that, to me, it puts puts the speaker in a mediating position, the position of a mediator, Mm. in the same way that Christ can refer to God the Father as our Lord and our God and our Father. So Mm. I think he's doing here. And then, of course, Micah reflects who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression, which mm-hmm. is the chief office of Christ. Yeah. So just thoughts to ponder there that some of the textual mm-hmm. tensions can be resolved if you're willing to say this is uh, in the voice of Christ.
0: No, I like that a lot. Yeah. All right, any other final thoughts? All right, all we have to do is flip the page then to Nahum. And go a little bit of the overview, and then we may get into first few verses of the text. Next week, we'll probably finish it. It's only three chapters long, so we'll see how we go. But So Nahum, the dating of that, it's going to be around 663 to 612 B.C. So the Assyrian captivity has already happened, and Babylonian captivity not yet and so this kind of in-between time, and we'll look at what Luther has to say. The prophet Nahum prophesies about the destruction that the Assyrians were to inflict upon the people of Israel and Judah, as it was then actually accomplished by Shalmaneser and Sennacherib. This destruction took place because of the people's great sins. It was limited, however, in that the righteous remnant, were to be preserved, as Hezekiah and those like him then experienced. Therefore, it seems that Nahum came before Isaiah, or was at least his contemporary. Next, Nahum announces the destruction of the kingdom of Assyria, especially of Nineveh. While the city was very righteous in the time of Jonah, it afterward became full of wickedness again and greatly afflicted the captives of Israel Therefore, even Tobit announces the final ruin of Nineveh's wickedness and says, its iniquity will bring it to destruction. True to his name, for Nahum means consolator or comforter. He comforts God's people, telling them that their enemies, the Assyrians, shall in turn be destroyed. So if you want to read the rest of that later, you can. That kind of gets us a good frame of mind for what Nahum is doing here, is he's speaking to the people of Israel who have been afflicted by the Assyrians. And he's saying, it will be okay. The Assyrians have what's coming to them. And so in a strange way, even though this is very much speaking against the Assyrians, it's to the great joy and comfort of the people of Israel because the Assyrians will then be wiped out eventually here. So we'll get just into the first couple of verses Chapter 1, verse 1, so an oracle, we've seen that with some of the other minor prophets concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, don't really know where Elkosh is exactly, but it is another vision that Nahum has from the Lord, so we've seen that with the other minor prophets, and here is that vision starting out. This is God's wrath against Nineveh in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. All right, so just some Again, kind of not quite what you would expect that the Lord saying that he is a jealous and avenging God and he's avenging and wrathful would actually be good news. But for the people of Israel, it is good news that the Lord is jealous and avenging. He sees the wickedness of the Assyrians and he will avenge his people and free them from that oppression that they are experiencing. So again, you'd kind of normally expect that the Lord is a jealous God, and so therefore keep my commandments or do this or do that. Rather, just the Lord simply saying that he is jealous and avenging is to the great comfort of the people of Israel who are being oppressed and that the Lord does see their oppression and he will avenge them and wipe out their adversaries. So again, great words of comfort for us that even though we are in the midst of this world the Lord does see. He is the Lord avenges and he is wrathful. It makes him angry at what oppression his people are facing here on this earth and he will avenge us and the rest of the believers for that. We'll probably go ahead and end there. Don't want to get too far into things and We're out of time, but just a little bit of the background and to get kind of a good scope on what we're going to be looking at in Nahum. We may finish it next week, depending on how quickly we move. Then we'll move on from there. Are there any final questions or thoughts? All right. The Lord be with you.